Welcome to Primer, a podcast that gets you closer to the heart of the matter. As you may know, the Primer is a small cap at the base of ammunition that when struck by a firing pin goes BAM. It ignites the gunpowder and sends the bullet downrange. The point of the podcast is like that, to get you going in the right direction quickly by briefly tackling a variety of subjects like books, people, events, issues, whatever. After listening, if you want to take it further, you can. Episodes and more information can be found at personalprimer.com. Welcome back to the Primer Podcast, everyone. My name is Charlie Thornton, and today I'm geeking out big time talking about C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite authors ever since I was a kid. Uh, If you're new to this podcast, it's great to have you. This is where we discuss ideas and people that we think are important, and we want to hopefully spark your interest into going deeper and learning more about them. And to do that, sometimes we get a chance to talk to people who can share their expertise with us. And that's what happened today. I got a chance to talk with probably the world's leading C.S. Lewis expert, a guy named Dr. Michael Ward. Uh, Dr. Ward is a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall at the University of Oxford. Um, He's the author of numerous books, including one that really rocked the world of C.S. Lewis fans from a few years ago. The book is called Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, where he lays out a really interesting discovery that he made that kind of unlocks uh, why it is that C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia in the way that he did. Um, And it's, it's, it's a pretty cool concept. So we hope you enjoy that conversation. He also hosted a um, BBC series uh, called The Narnia Code uh, on that same topic. And then there's a corresponding book with that called The Narnia Code, C.S. Lewis and the Secrets of the Seven Heavens. And if you're interested in this topic, that might actually be a good place to start because it's less of an academic work and it's more accessible to consumers like me. Um, Dr. Ward is actually also Father Ward. He was uh, ordained as a Catholic priest a few years ago. Um, Prior to that, he had been an Anglican priest. And so he's been on sort of an interesting faith journey, something that we didn't get into this time, but maybe at some point we'll get a chance to talk about that. Um, He is also the professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University in Texas, where he teaches a course on uh, a master's course on Christian apologetics. All right. Um, I hope you enjoy this conversation half as much as I did having it. Let's listen into my conversation with Dr. Michael Ward. Dr. Michael Ward, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be had. Thank you very much. When this topic came up, C.S. Lewis is something that we've wanted to talk about for some time, and you were on my wish list of people to talk to. So I'm not going to lie. I've had the pr- pleasure of interviewing you know famous athletes and working with big time executives but i'm geeking out like i'm this this to me is a a real treasure to talk to you so thanks for uh, taking a little bit of time to speak with us excellent yeah glad to be here thank you so let's let's start with um your interest in in c.s lewis uh how were you first introduced to c.s lewis same way most people are i expect Uh, my parents read the narnia books to me when i was a kid i've got two older brothers and Uh, They and I would jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday morning, and my mother would read us a chapter of the latest Narnia Chronicle. Then we'd get up, have breakfast, and go to church. 
Um, and those are some of my earliest memories. And so I was I was read the Narnia books before I could even read them for myself. And uh, as soon as I was able to read them for myself, I did so, and I've never stopped. Never stopped. Um, and that was exactly how I got introduced to them as well, except we would read them at night. So either the kids would fall asleep and we'd miss part of the story, or maybe more commonly, my dad would fall asleep right. at reading them. And now that I, and I, you know, I read them to my kids as well. And the same thing happens. I usually fall asleep before they do. But um, so, so you, you start, you, you develop this love for C.S. Lewis, starting with these children's stories. And then it, it grows from there. And I believe you did some undergraduate work on Lewis as well. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I went to do my first degree at Oxford in English. And one of the optional papers that I chose to do was a, a short undergraduate thesis on the depictions of evil in the Narnia Chronicles. And that was the first time I'd ever sort of officially studied Lewis's works. And uh, as a result of that, short undergraduate paper I was asked to do a bit of tutoring and lecturing on Lewis after I'd graduated and then a bit more and then a bit more and it sort of gradually snowballed into a whole career teaching and writing about C.S. Lewis I even got to live in his old home the kilns for three years um was how did that work out curator oh well the the house is owned by the C.S. Lewis Foundation which is a charity based in California and uh, they need someone to look after the house. Uh, and I knew that they had a vacancy for that position. So I suggested that they appoint me and they agreed. And um, so I had the privilege of living for three years in, well, not just his house, which I was sharing with five other people, but um, in particular, I had his bedroom and study to myself, uh, which was a great boon. That's kind of fascinating. <laughs> Do you feel like you have a better understanding of the man having lived and worked in his actual office and well yeah at some sort of subliminal level it's hard to put it into words really but you know you just get to know the dimensions of his private space as it were you, you know from the inside as it were literally from the inside um what his house is like in in the winter you know it's a very cold house and the uh, the, the the curtains will blow across the room, you know, even when the windows are closed because the, they're so drafty. <laughs> uh, it, admittedly, it's not quite as bad as it was when Lewis lived there because he didn't have central heating. Um, they've at least put in central heating since then. And when he oh wow there, when he lived there, he, there's a famously cold winter in I think 1947 when he said he said in the letter, "I was very cold in bed last night. I was so cold that I." was also very thirsty so I put out my hand to take a sip of water from the glass of water on my bedside table and the water had frozen whoa <laughs> you can at least lick the ice he said oh my gosh that's fascinating <laughs> um well we before we get into this really cool and I suppose important discovery that you made um about the chronicles of Narnia it, it, maybe we zoom up to 20,000 feet here and and why why is C.S. Lewis, in your estimation, important? Why should our listeners even be interested in knowing about this guy? If you could give a brief answer to that. I know there are many long ones, but, mm. but what would you say to that? Uh, well, in short, because he's a very good writer. Uh, he's an excellent writer. He's one of the best writers of the 20th century. Uh, he's, you know, he's a once in a century kind of figure, not, not just a, a writer of 
fiction like the Narnia books, but also of Christian apologetics, mere Christianity, problem of pain, and so on. Um, he was a he was a major, a towering figure. He, you know, he he was one of the great minds of his generation. So everybody should know about him. Does do you feel like he is? Um, I mean, you call him a towering figure. It, does he get his due in in academia, or is that not yet sort of come to fruition? Because I know here, like, we don't read any of his books in school. My kids will never encounter him in school uh, unless they go to a very particular university that maybe has courses on that. Uh, I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, he uh, he does get taught in in a number of courses in schools, um, even, you know, even some sort of public schools. I, you know, I've spoken on Lewis at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Brown and Stanford. Um, you know, he's got plenty of followers, admirers, people who are interested in him all over the place, all over the spectrum. Um, amongst, uh, you know, academics, um, particularly in Oxford, where I am, in England, um, he's perhaps a little bit undervalued because his theological works are written by someone who wasn't theologically trained. You know, he, mm. he never studied theology formally. He never taught theology formally. Um, so he tends to get rather overlooked by the theologians. And then his English literary criticism and his fiction are often rather overlooked because they're too Christian. <laughs> mm. um, so he rather falls between two stools. Um, however, there are plenty of people, plenty of very, you know, highly qualified academics who, who even in Britain, who are prepared to write about him and lecture about him. Um, so, uh, you know, the situation isn't too bad by any means. And, uh, you know, I, I've been able to carve out a niche for myself here at Oxford and my speciality is C.S. Lewis. So um, it can't be all bad. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So you, you lived in his house, you're studying him. Um, and then at some point you, you make this really interesting discovery. Can you, can you tell the story behind that, please? The Narnia Chronicles are seven books, which Lewis wrote in the 1950s and which um, have attracted a lot of popularity. Uh, they're hugely you know, successful works, classic works, really, still selling in their millions. Um, but they've always um, excited a little bit of um, sort of scepticism or, or, or questioning about how they hang together as stories. Because, and this goes back right to the start, when, when C.S. Lewis first read aloud the first few chapters of the first book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, to, to his great friend Tolkien. I expect your readers are familiar with the fact that Lewis yes, and Tolkien are great friends. I expect they are, yeah. Um, but Tolkien didn't much like what he heard because he he thought that the Narnia books, or at least what he heard of the first book, was was a bit of a hodgepodge, a mishmash. That Lewis had put together the story out of very incompatible mythological literary traditions. So you've got English children, you've got centaurs and fauns and dryads and naiads from... Greek or Roman mythology, you've got a Hans Anderson white witch, this sort of Snow Queen character. You've got Father Christmas in the book as well. And Tolkien thought that this was a bit of a mishmash. And because Tolkien has gone on to be so famous, lots of people have echoed Tolkien's 
initial response and they've sort of tended to write off the Narnia books as a bit careless, a bit haphazard. Um, but the mystery about that is that Lewis himself was not at all characteristically a, a slapdash or a random writer or thinker. You know, he was a very rigorous and consistent thinker. Um, mm. And so it's unlikely that the Narnia books were just thrown together any old how. And lots of people have attempted to find some sort of undergirding or overarching unity or, or thematic coherence, you know, some sort of imaginative blueprint that Lewis was working to when he wrote these apparently chaotic works. And um, yeah. all sorts of different theories have been suggested. Uh, but the one theory that had not been suggested before I came along and suggested it was the seven heavens, the seven planets of the medieval cosmos, which C.S. Lewis, as a medieval scholar, knew all about. And once you come at the Narnia books from this angle, they suddenly make a whole lot of new and miraculously detailed sense. All right, so seven planets. So I grew up when there were nine and then Pluto got counted off, right? So <laughs> help us understand when, when, in the medieval sense, what are the seven planets? The best way to think about it is in connection with the names of the days of the week. Sunday, okay. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So why is Sunday called Sunday? It's named after the sun. Why is Monday called Monday? It's named after the moon. So the sun and the moon were two of these seven planets, according to the medieval way of thinking. And then the other five were, well, think of it in Spanish or French. Uh, Tuesday, Martes, Mars's day, Miércoles or Mercredi, Wednesday, Mercury's day, and then Jupiter's day, Jove's day, Jueves, uh, Vendredi, Viernes is Venus's day for Friday, and Sat okay. Saturday is obviously Saturn's day. So those are the seven heavens, the seven planets. They hadn't discovered uh, they haven't discovered Uranus or Neptune, let alone Pluto. Um, and those were the the seven celestial objects that could be seen with the naked eye that were regarded as planets. Okay. And a planet is literally something that wanders and the, all the other celestial objects are stars, not planets that, and they're fixed. They're in their constellations, but the seven planets are the seven wanderers and they were believed to have certain characteristics and qualities about them, certain influences that they would shed upon the earth so that they would give, people a particular temperament or character so you know if you're, if you're a very warlike person uh, you would be, you were under the influence of mars because mars is the god of war you know the martial spirit would be infused into you if you were born under mars uh, and now a lot of people immediately think oh this is terrible pagan astrology how could c.s lewis have been interested in it mm -hmm. but of course um astrology only means the study of the stars. You know, you have geology, the study of the earth, you have biology, the study of life, you have zoology, the study of animals, and in astrology, you have the study of the stars. And there's nothing necessarily wrong or pagan or foolish or dangerous or evil about studying the stars. Um, it all depends what you do with that study. Um, of course, there are unchristian ways that you could take your study of the stars, but you needn't go in that direction if you don't want to. And there's plenty of, you know, Christian astrology in 
in the Bible. I mean, just think of the three wise men, the, the wise men who follow the star from the east and come to Jesus's birthplace in Bethlehem. They're, they're okay. astrologers. They're studying the heavens and it leads them to worship Christ. So there's a, a Christian understanding of astrology to be had, too. And it's that that Lewis was plugging into. And as a medieval Christian, you would have understood these different planets in different ways that they symbolized more than just stars that appear to move on their own, right? Yeah, they had their own characteristics and they and these characteristics in turn came from God um, because the heavens are telling the glory of God. Psalm 19, that C.S. Lewis described as the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. The heavens are telling the glory of God, so of course you would want to understand the heavens as well as possible. And um, and so a lot of these characteristics that were attached to the, the seven heavens were, were suggestive of, of divine qualities and characteristics. So, you know, just okay. think most obviously of the sun. Jesus in John's Gospel says, I am the light of the world. You know, he's, as it were, applying to himself all these solar characteristics. And Jesus is the word of God. So think of that in connection with Mercury. Mercury is connected with speech and language um, and messages. Yeah. And Venus is associated with love. Venus is also known as the morning star. And we have in the New Testament, Jesus saying in the book of Revelation, I am the bright and morning star. Um, so, you know, it's that whole Christian understanding of the heavens that Lewis and indeed medieval authors and, and, and poets um, had been using for generations. But mm -hmm. in the last 400 years or so since the scientific revolution, it's fallen out of favour and we don't know about it much anymore. And that's why Lewis was so keen to rehabilitate it and reintroduce it to the modern imagination. What do, you, what do you think he thought we were missing without knowing that stuff? Well, we were missing uh, access to all sorts of interesting historical poems and plays and, and stories. Because, okay. you know, Chaucer, uh, the father of English poetry, and Dante, you know, the great Italian medieval poet, you know, they're, they're using this old Seven Heavens cosmology right. all the time in their writing and you can't understand Chaucer or Dante if you don't understand this old cosmology uh, but it's more than that it's not just a historical thing uh, Lewis regarded these seven planets these seven heavens as uh, spiritual symbols of permanent value I'm quoting him there he said they were okay. spiritual symbols of permanent value which were especially worthwhile in his own generation uh, and then he adds of Saturn, we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Jove, of Jupiter? Now, he says that because, remember, Lewis's generation was the generation that went through the First World War. Yeah. Um, mi millions of people were either wounded or killed in the First World War. Lewis himself was very nearly one of them. And Saturn was associated with death and disaster and calamity. Mm. So that's why Lewis says of Saturn, we know more than enough in his generation. But who does not need to be reminded of Jupiter? Because Jupiter was, 
was the, the great kingly symbol, the symbol of sovereignty and all things regal and jovial. I mean, just think of that word jovial. It comes from Jove. Jove is another name for Jupiter. And Lewis thought that, you know, in, the, in his generation, if you were being tempted, if you're being inclined to think that the, the universe was entirely bleak and desolate and meaningless and saturnine, you know, completely influenced by Saturn, think again, because there are six other ways of symbolizing spiritual reality. Saturn is not the only one way, uh, nor is it the most important way. The, the, the king of the seven was Jupiter, who was this uh, tranquil and festive and magnanimous symbol. Yeah, fascinating. So, so there's these different spiritual ways, or these different important ways of looking at the world. And what you're saying is he connected these these seven different types, mm -hmm. these planets, to, and each book in his chronicle sort of reflects one of them. Exactly. Yeah. So now bringing it all back to the Narnia Chronicles, they're not a hodgepodge. They're not a mishmash at all. They are rather um, minutely detailed works of, of imagination keyed to one of the, the seven spiritual symbols, one planet per book. So Lewis takes the, the qualities and the characteristics of, of say, uh, Jupiter in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and he, mm -hmm. he, he constructs the whole storyline out of those qualities. Um, Aslan, the Christ figure, sums up those qualities in his own character, the way that Lewis portrays him, and all sorts of little ornamental incidental details um, fill in the picture. But Lewis does it secretly, he does it quietly, he does it implicitly, he doesn't tell the reader what he's up to, he just constructs the Narnia world in that first book out of this jovial symbolism so that you feel from inside what it might be like to live in a in a jovial world and, mm -hmm. and that's precisely what he said art was good at art was good at communicating things from within what he calls enjoyment consciousness not contemplation from the outside but enjoyment from the inside uh, and the and the brilliant thing that he does is that he doesn't just give each story a, a pervasive atmosphere or tone or flavor you know that's that's been done for for generations that, there's nothing new about that particularly what he does mm -hmm. what's, what's new is that he's he's using these planetary symbols uh to say something about jesus about the christ figure you know aslan the lion is a christ figure within each story and he sums up this prevailing spirit in each chronicle so you can see it very intensely concentrated in aslan but you can also sense it dispersed as it were in the whole of the rest of the tale and that theologically was for lewis a really important point that jesus is the key to the cosmos if you want to understand the universe look at the author of the universe who is Christ, who, who is the word of God, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, all things have come into being through this word. But the word becomes flesh in Jesus. So there ought to be some sort of harmony between the Christ character and the cosmos at large, 
And Lewis believed that there really was such a thing in the real world. And that's what he's trying to depict imaginatively in each of the Narnia Chronicles. It's fascinating because as a kid, when you, you know, they're great stories, right? They're really interesting stories. They're, as you said, they're really, really well written, mm. you know, just so easy to, to listen to. But they are, they are different. Each book has a different feel. The, Narnia is the thread that holds them all together. But, I, you know, compared to the other series that my dad would sort of read to us over and over again, which is, was Tolkien's works, right? That was this careful construction of this world that starts with The Hobbit. And then as you go, it, it becomes more defined and deeper and you start to, but you're, you're continually getting immersed in this one world, right? Whereas, and I didn't know if it was because of the time element where you're constantly bouncing around time-wise or just because the characters are always changing, but it didn't always feel like the same place. Mm. You know, Narnia didn't always feel like the same place. Each, each book had its sort of own unique character. And, and now that you're explaining this, it, it intuitively, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It accounts for all sorts of otherwise puzzling uh, uh, apparent inconsistencies between the books. Um, and if we focus in on the character of Aslan, that, that, that becomes most, it becomes most clear because, you know, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Aslan's introduced as the king. That's the very first description given of him. He's the king of the wood. He's the king of the beasts. He's got a royal standard, a royal crown, a royal pavilion. He, he, he ends up crowning the children and, and says to them, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. So all this regal imagery is associated with Aslan in that first book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, because that's the jovial book, the Jupiter book. Jupiter was the king of the seven heavens. But in, say, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is the sun book, the solar story, Aslan is seen, for instance, flying in a sunbeam as a bird. Uh, and at the eastern edge of the world... He scatters light from his mane um, because in that book, he's taking on all these solar properties instead. Um, and if you look at, you know, one of the less well-known books, The Horse and His Boy, that's the Mercury story. And Mercury is, is, as I mentioned, associated with words and language, but also with rapidity, with rolling around quickly and coming back together like quicksilver rolling around in a dish. And in that book, Aslan is mistaken for two lions or possibly three lions. And he does a great deal of dashing about in the story. But eventually when he's tracked down, he says there was only one lion, but he was swift of foot. So think of your, your, your classic statues of Mercury, who's always depicted as a, a winged messenger with wings on his yeah. feet and wings on his helmet. He's swift of foot. Because Aslan is swift of foot because he's the true Mercury. He's the true divine word in The Horse and His Boy. So these are all invitations to sort of contemplate these different aspects of, of Christ, really. Well, yes, except uh, it's interesting you use that word contemplate because uh, I mean, that's, that, that word has a, a very particular meaning to C.S. Lewis. Um, you're meaning it. So it's not contemplate. What's the proper <laughs> word? <laughs> what you're meaning in the general sense of, of meditate and mull over and think about. Um, and that's true. Um, but the distinct way in which Lewis uses it, it in his 
vocabulary he uses contemplate as the opposite of enjoy so you, yeah. you can either contemplate things from the outside inspecting them from a distance as it were you know observing them from arm's length but out without getting personally involved that's contemplation right. in his strict sense of the word or you can enjoy them from inside you can step into yeah. the, the beam of light and let it flood you and fill you and and then you have a totally different experience yeah well it's the difference between reading a cookbook and savoring a meal right absolutely yeah um okay so fascinating so how did you like where were you when you made this discovery did was it a was it something you pieced together over time or did you have was there like a moment where the the scales fell from your eyes <laughs> well it was a bit of both really uh, for many years i'd been aware that the narnia books presented this puzzle and that lots of different readers and scholars had attempted to solve the puzzle with various suggestions people had made you know, various attempts to explain the Chronicles by reference to the seven deadly sins, say. Okay. In fact, two scholars, independently of each other, came up with the seven deadly sins as an explanation of the Narnia Chronicles. The only problem was that they assigned different sins to different books. Uh, <laughs> so that theory didn't get very far. And other people thought of, you know, the seven traditional virtues or the seven books of of a poem called Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. That was one of Lewis's favourite 16th century poems. Um, but none of these theories got very far and they weren't very persuasive. But I, I was aware that people were looking at this and trying to crack this code, as it were. Yeah. I even myself made a half-hearted attempt once upon a time to, to link the Chronicles to different plays by Shakespeare because there are lots of Shakespearean things going on in the Chronicles. But, you know, that didn't explain them very well either. So I abandoned that. And then then I started doing my PhD, looking at C.S. Lewis's theological imagination. And I wasn't actually focusing on the Narnia books. I was looking at another aspect of his thought and his writing. Um, I was looking at how he, he says things without saying them, if you see what I mean. He, what I called his implicit communication, how he gets beneath the radar and, um, you know, like all great artists, the art is in concealing the art. You don't show your working. And Right. The, the whole show, don't tell. and Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at Lewis, how, how he showed things without telling them. And then one day I'm, I'm lying in bed. Well, one night I'm lying in bed. It's about 1130 at night. And I'm reading his long poem that he wrote about the seven heavens. It's a long, detailed, complicated poem that he wrote 15 years before The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And it's about the seven medieval planets. And he's giving a poetic account of their various qualities and attributes. And he, and he was a medieval professor, right? I mean, he... Yeah, or, that's right. He taught yeah. medieval literature for his whole career at Oxford. And, and this is what he spent his weeks, days, years doing. Exactly. It was his professional career. He was paid to think about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, and he was an absolute expert in it. And not just, you know, from a scholarly point of view, but from an imaginative and creative point of view too. So that he, you know, he would write poems about the seven heavens. He wouldn't just write scholarly monographs on them. 
So I'm reading this long poem, and when I get to the lines about Jupiter, I read that one of the things that Jupiter brings about, according to C.S. Lewis's poem, is winter past and guilt forgiven. Winter past and guilt forgiven. And those five words jump off the page at me and make me think of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Yeah. Because, you know, the central event of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is, is the defeat of the White Witch, who's made it always winter, but never Christmas. And Aslan comes in, and at his coming, uh, winter meets its death. When he bears his when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And so winter passes, and guilt is forgiven, because Edmund, the treacherous sneak who betrays his brother and sisters, his guilt is forgiven. Aslan lays down his life for the sake of this traitor. So winter past and guilt forgiven is like a five-word summary of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, but it's also got this essential link with the qualities of Jupiter, according to, you know, this medieval understanding. So that, that clued me into the possibility that there might be a link between the Seven Heavens and the Chronicles and you know, it didn't take much effort to work out how they all fitted together. Fascinating. And and how, I mean, were you up all night thinking about this? <laughs> well, I, I quickly jumped out of bed and um, started looking at some of the other places where Lewis writes very explicitly about the seven heavens. Because he does it in a number of his works, not just that poem, but also in one of his academic books called The Discarded Image, where he has a whole chapter on the heavens as they were understood in the Middle Ages. Uh, and then in one of his interplanetary novels, That Hideous Strength, he has a whole chapter in which the planets come down to Earth. You know, these, these planetary spirits, they exert their influences very palpably in that novel. So I looked at and, you know, I compared and contrasted all these explicit treatments of the planet, planetary powers and then considered the Narnia Chronicles in connection with them and was the was the mixing and matching pretty quick yeah I mean it was it was, I, was it a matter of an hour or 15 minutes it was you'd sort of no it was a matter of 50 seconds because <laughs> it was not complicated <laughs> yeah okay because you know so it really well first of all you know I got I got this connection between Jupiter and the line which in order now Saturn this planet of death and disaster is obviously connected with the last book, the last battle, in which all the characters die. That that didn't take much effort. Um, the voyage of the Dawn Treader is just drenched with sunlight, and the whole point of the story is going to the eastern edge of the world. Yeah. The Dawn yeah. Treader is where the sun comes up, so that was pretty obviously the sun story. The Silver right. Chair is obviously the moon story. You you work that out from the title alone. Because silver yeah. is is the moon's metal, the silvery goddess. Um, then Venus is associated with with love and life and laughter, creativity, fertility. So that was very obviously the magician's nephew, where Narnia is born. Brought you know Aslan creates Narnia in that the creation point. story of it. Yeah. Um, the horse and his boy, as I've already mentioned, is the Mercury story. And that I was tipped off to that by, um, you know, there is an unnamed character in the horse and his boy who wears a cap with, with little wings on either side of it. 
And ever since I was a kid, I had wondered why that unnamed character was wearing a, a winged helmet. But as soon as I thought of it in connection with Mercury, you know, that, that's Lewis tipping me the wink. That's, you know, he's left. Okay. Crumbs. And, that, and so the, the only one that remains is, is Prince Caspian. Um, and that, that's the Mars story. And indeed, that's the only book in which the word Marshall appears. But, you know, it's a, it's a military story. It's a, it's a yes. war story. Right, it's a war story. Um, okay, so th th this is fascinating. I guess the question that's sticking out is, I mean, this guy wrote tons of books. Mm -hmm. uh, he he had students. He lectured. I mean, how is it reasonable to think that he would have kept this a secret? And and for what purpose? Yeah, very good question. And that, of course, is the main question that I had to address myself as soon as I stumbled across this this discovery I, I had to say to myself well why has why did Lewis keep it secret and why has nobody else spotted it before um and I'll answer the second question first and um, why has nobody spotted it before well lots of people had tried and some people had come close but I think as I was saying earlier, a lot of people assume that astrology is unchristian, and therefore they conclude that Lewis, the great Christian writer, could not have had a serious interest in astrology. But as I tried to show earlier, there's a long tradition of Christian astrology. So there, there's, you know, that's that's not a reason why Lewis would have been uninterested in it at all. Um, but that does help explain why other people hadn't given it the serious consideration it deserved. And then the other question about why would Lewis keep it secret? Well, first of all, it's important to point out that he could keep very major secrets when he wanted to. Um, the most obvious is the fact that when he got married in his late 50s to Joy Davidman, if you've seen the film Shadowlands, you'll know about this. He, he married her twice, <laughs> but the first time he married her, he married her secretly. He married her in a civil registry office wedding, but told nobody about it, not even close friends like Tolkien, and they didn't live together as husband and wife. So a man who can keep his marriage secret can easily keep secret a literary blueprint like this. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of other examples of his secretiveness. His autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he left out so many important things that one of his friends jokingly said, it, it shouldn't have been called Surprised by Joy. It should have been called Suppressed by Jack. Because Jack was, Jack was Lewis's nickname. Um, yeah. So he was well known for being guarded and private and secretive. Um, but the main reason why he kept it secret was because the whole point of it was to get below the radar of our imaginations, of our intellects, so that we wouldn't look at this thing we would look along it from inside. And if he had told us that this was his plan, he would have frustrated the very thing he was trying to achieve. You know, he'd have given the game away. Yeah. So he had to keep it secret. And indeed, he I think he deliberately at times misdirected people, led people away from it who might otherwise have stumbled upon it. Was he asked questions about what's the logic here or why the seven and he... Well, there was one conversation that he had um, with someone who, to whom he said, um, 
that he had an idea that he wanted to try out with the Narnia books. And having tried it out to the full, it was time to stop. Now, as soon as he'd said that, I think Lewis realised, uh-oh, I've sort of opened the door a crack here, because the next question is obviously going to be, so what idea worked out to the full after seven books um, was this idea? So immediately he covers his tracks by adding, there had to be seven books, or three, or nine. Those are the magic numbers. But that's all a smokescreen. He's just throwing dust in the eyes of his of his of the chap he was speaking to, because of course you know when he first set out to write the Narnia books, he said, we know this from various letters. He said there was only ever one book that he had in mind. Um, there was never always you know a plan to do three, seven, or nine, but the one book he had in mind originally was the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That yeah. he wanted to, he wanted to write a story filled with Jupiter who does not need to be reminded of Jove and then having done one he did another and then another and another and it grew incrementally until he'd done all seven and then it was time to stop so he had the idea before the first book because I saw a letter somewhere you know where he says well I just set out to I set out to write the first one and then that happened and then I thought well write a couple more but I never thought I'd write seven but here you know I'm paraphrasing he didn't use those words so do you think he had the, the concept from the outset? Well, he, I believe, very definitely decided early on in the writing of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe that this was going to be infused with the jovial spirit. This was going to be his Jupiter book. Yeah. And at that stage, it was just a one-off. He didn't know that there were going to be any more, but that's fine, you know, because yeah. the whole point is that it's incremental. It grew gradually. And after he'd done his Jupiter book... He then thought, oh, well, I'll do another and then another. And then eventually he did all seven. But seven was the obvious cutoff point because there were only seven planets. So that idea that there were possibly going to be nine is that's just a red herring. Yeah, I got it. OK, well, this is fascinating. And then, of course, you you wrote um, the Narnia planet documenting all this, right? Well, no, I wrote a book called Planet Narnia. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, and then that became a BBC documentary called The Narnia Code. Okay. And then there's a, a much shorter book called The Narnia Code, um, which sort of distills all the detailed findings that you can read about in Planet Narnia. And it's less references. It's a little bit yeah. maybe easier for the average person to get through. Absolutely. Planet Narnia is is a very scholarly, detailed argument yeah. full of footnotes yeah. and yeah, cross-references and so on. Yeah, great. Um What's been the reception? Oh, the reception has been fantastic. I, I can't tell you how marvellous it's been. I was hoping for a good response because, you know, I believe that this is a, a genuine discovery. Um, but it's been even better than I could have imagined because um, people have, have not just sort of accepted it as, as a dry fact, but they've really been sort of thrilled and inspired by it. And it's it's engendered all sorts of interesting responses. People have written poems in response and they've painted pictures and they've written music and someone wrote to me and said I was I so love this idea that I wrote a poem in which I proposed to my girlfriend and she's now my wife and another person wrote and said that we so much love your idea about joviality that we called our firstborn child Jovi um it's been amazing awesome. <laughs> that's really cool and I'm sure people are out there scouting and trying to make new connections based on this 
this key that you've now given them. Yeah, and people have written to me from all around the world, actually pointing me in new directions, uh, pointing out things I'd missed or that I would never have discovered. Um, so that's been really helpful too. So for instance, you know, the silver chair, we mentioned the silver chair. Um, there was a 16th century poet, a contemporary of Shakespeare's called Ben Jonson. And Ben Jonson writes a poem about the moon in which he calls the moon the silver chair. Now, C.S. Lewis knew Johnson's poetry much better than I will ever do. And so I'm sure that's just a, an allusion that I had missed, but one of my readers knew about and kindly informed me of. That's great. That is so cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your your new book that by the time this airs will be out. Um, can I geek out for a moment, though, and just ask you some nerdy questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, one of them is just the the issue of the order of the the books and i'm sure you get this question all the time but when you know when i started reading when, when i got the books to read under my kids in my opinion they were out of order they had the magician's nephew first which i don't think is a great intro book so what are what are your thoughts on uh, what's the proper order to read the chronicles of narnia uh, if you're reading them for the first time you must 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 start with the lion the witch and the wardrobe and do not be misled by evil publishers who put a number one on the spine of the magician's nephew or who print the magician's nephew first in a single volume edition because the magician's nephew was published sixth and when it came out c.s lewis knew that most of his readers would have read five previous books so he doesn't take any great effort to introduce the character of Aslan. We just see this lion strolling up and down, creating Narnia, singing Narnia into being in The Magician's Nephew, but he's not introduced in any very obvious fashion. Whereas in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, when Aslan's name is first mentioned, the narrator steps onto the page, as it were, and says, now the children didn't know who Aslan was any more than you do, any more than you, the reader. But of course, if you've read The Magician's Nephew by that stage, you do know who Aslan is. Yeah, so, right. So that line makes no sense. So you must start with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I think it's really nice, regrettable that uh, mislead people in this. And there are many other much more serious reasons why it, it ruins the effect if you come to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe second. The Well, and my biggest concern was, well, first of all, I don't, I don't the Magician's Nephew is a hard, is a harder book to explain. I feel like whereas the, you know the 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 Land of the Witch and the Wardrobe is so accessible to mm. young kids right away, right mm. off the bat. But also, you lose the magic of walking with the kids through the wardrobe for the first time, mm. which is so. I mean, that's that that scene is what hooks you. Mm. You know, I, as a kid, I I remember. You know, I, I just thought that was so fascinating. Because they're living in a very in a world that does isn't magic. Mm. I mean, to use a you know, I suppose it's sort of that moment where you know later you know Harry Potter kind of transports from the regular world into the world of wizards or whatever. But it's that moment is is so fascinating, and you would lose that if you already kind of knew it was coming because you'd already read this other book. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because <laughs> it means we we got it right. Um, have you seen the the movies that were made 
I'm sure you have the the more modern movies that were made in the last whatever 10 15 years. Yep, I've seen them. And what do you think of them? Not very much. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the we used to watch the the BBC one? Yeah, I've seen when we were kids. Yeah, and they and we would What do you think of that one? Well, they they now look horrifically dated, but for all that, they seem to me to capture more of the spirit of the books than these massive multi-million dollar feature films. The, the, of the three films that they made, the first one, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, was the least bad, I thought. You know, that was passable. I mean, it it had major problems, if you ask me, but it was still, you know, just about acceptable. Prince Caspian was a good deal worse. And then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader was an absolute travesty. I don't I don't think we got that far. I don't think we ever saw the second two. You were fortunate. You were saved. The disaster okay. that was that for third film. Yeah. Well, that's such a cool book too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of glad to hear you say that because I, I actually thought that the BBC ones, we would laugh about the special effects, but it would have been great if they'd just taken the same cast and and like taken the same script and just added the new casting and, and all the cool special effects. And then we would have been somewhere, I feel like. But, yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's just me geeking out a little bit. Um, let's, let's talk about your uh, new book on the abolition of man, which is not a, not, not a, not a children's story. Um, it's coming out here soon. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so The Abolition of Man is one of Lewis's uh, philosophical works. Very, very different from the Narnia Chronicles. Um, it originated as three philosophical lectures that he gave during the Second World War uh, about whether right and wrong are objective or not. You know, do we make value up out of our own heads or do we recognise something real and objective when we say that you know, lying is wrong, stealing is wrong, murder is wrong. Um, so he's 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 mounting a philosophical defense of objective value in that book. And um, it's a very, very important book and a very influential, um, not just for, for Lewis and his other writings, but on, on lots of thinkers and scholars since. It's one of his most admired books. But it's also very difficult. It's, it's quite dense and um, knotty. So I've written this guide to to unpack it and make it a bit more accessible. And my guide is called After Humanity. So Lewis's book is The Abolition of Man. Mine is After Humanity, a guide to the abolition, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And it's coming out uh, next month in June uh, with a publisher called Word on Fire Academic. Excellent. And I'm curious, why, why now? I mean, was this something that you feel we need in the in the world today well i think we do need it actually yes um in this post-truth generation um where you make up your own facts and um you live in your own little ecosystem um just digesting the news that you want to digest whatever comports with your own worldview and are never exposed to any threatening alternative views um, yeah, I think it's highly relevant, much more relevant indeed than it was even back in the 1940s. And it was pretty relevant even then. But it's been a great 
adventure putting this book together because I've learned all sorts of things about the abolition of man, which I never knew. And um, one of the best things about the book, I'm pleased to say, is is a photo gallery. I've got 36 images in the book of, of documents and people and places that are associated with the abolition of man, including Lewis's original blurb for the abolition of man, which has never been published before. But I discovered that in a library here in England and... Um, managed to get permission to reproduce that in the book so that and several other things have never seen the light of day before and i'm very pr proud of this book i'm i'm pleased and i think that people shouldn't be put off by the idea of philosophical lectures i i hope i've made it pretty accessible to to the general reader i mean i'm not philosophically trained myself i've never studied philosophy so i needed i needed this help myself i was it's basically a self-help book um <laughs> which is now available well, for other readers too and that seems like very much in the spirit of what C.S. Lewis was so good at was was making ideas accessible. I mean, I, I'm not trained really in any, you know, in, in literature nor philosophy. And I really have his his work, you know, Mere Christianity or the Four Loves are just incredible. Mm. Um, because, well, it's interesting because, you mentioned Mere Christianity because Mere Christianity opens with a with an argument about morality. You know, the opening of the mere Christianity is right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. Right. And and there in mere Christianity, Lewis is making the same argument that he makes in the abolition of man, but in a much more popular and simple fashion, you know, that, that can be digested in a 15 minute broadcast on the radio. Yeah. That's how mere Christianity originated. So if you want to understand mere Christianity um, more deeply, one of the ways to do that is to go behind it, as it were, to the abolition of man, where you get some of the more detailed scholarly thinking. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Um, last question here for you. If someone wants to, if one of our listeners wants to dip his or her, her toe into the world of C.S. Lewis, you know, as an adult now, and maybe maybe has read nothing and been exposed to none of it, what what guidance would you give them as to where to start? Yeah, if you've read nothing, um, I would suggest starting with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, if you want some fiction, or start with um, Mere Christianity, if you want some introduction to Lewis's faith, or if you want something which is sort of betwixt and between those two things, I would suggest The Screwtape Letters. Uh, that's a very popular work of Lewis's, which is fiction, but it's it's all about the uh, psychology of temptation. The screw tape letters. That's a, it's a, a, an imagined correspondence between two devils about tempting a human being and trying to win him to hell, um, which makes it sound rather grim. But actually, it's very funny. It's a satire upon uh, devilish wiles, and it, and it's a brilliant book. One of Lewis's absolute classics. It was what got his face on the cover of Time magazine in the nineteen forties because the screw tape letters were such a hit. And I think after The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, The Screwtape Letters is probably going to be the book of Lewis's that lasts the longest. It's an absolute classic. Excellent. Dr. Michael Ward, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, mine too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.